dive back into Matthew 4. But we're going to look at verses 5, 6, and 7 today as we press into where uh, Jesus is walking through this temptation again. So if you don't mind, will you stand up with me just as we approach God's word with a little reverence? And so Matthew 4, verse 5, it starts with this. Then the devil took him along into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it's written, he will give his angels orders concerning you, and on their hands they will lift you up, so that you do not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, on the other hand, it's written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word, for your word, and Lord, we know it speaks to us, it works in us, it does things in us, and Father, I also know that you speak through us and you speak in spite of us, and so I ask you to to speak through me today where it's appropriate, and if there's anything that you need to undo to speak in spite of me, Lord, I ask that you would do that as well. And so we just give you this time and we seek you fully in Jesus' name, amen. So I wanna put a picture up here, there's a, a picture coming up, you see this? See that big stake right there? Um, we, used to, we had this big Christmas thing we did, and, and we were tearing it down, and it was in December, obviously, because that's when Christmas is. And, and so one of the jobs I was given was to get those big tent stakes, like that size, out of the ground. So it was teardown day. I've got this sledgehammer, and it's, it's in the Midwest, so it's like the ground's like Midwest U.S. frozen. It's not quite Canada frozen, but it's Midwest U.S. frozen ground. So it was kind of hard. And if it was Canada frozen, we would have said, yeah, we'll get it in April. Um, But because it was Midwest, U.S., kind of Missouri frozen, I started hitting it with this hammer, and I'm knocking on it and smacking it around and moving it side to side. And and, and it took a while, and it wasn't pleasant, but I got them out. Now, here's the thing. Don't you think that if I, with a sledgehammer, could get eight big tent stakes out of the ground, that that big elephant should be able to pull that thing out? If I can get eight of them out with a sledgehammer, it seems that he should be able to pull that stake out of the ground, doesn't it? And if you've ever been to the circus, you've, you've seen the, this, a relatively small tent stake, like the one in this picture, keeping this big, massive elephant in place an animal that's been trained to clear jungles and has been used to push over walls and not uproot trees, for some reason stays in place, fastened by a tent stake. Why? Why? Well, we're gonna figure out why as we walk through this because there's a lesson for us in that tent stake holding that massive elephant in place. See, here's the deal. We live in a performance-driven culture. We're raised in performance. We are we parent with performance. We succeed based on performance. We perform to get grades. We perform to make the team. We perform to get playing time. We perform to get pay races. We perform to get promotions. We have a performance-driven culture, a performance-driven mentality. And so the underlying message in that culture is this. Your identity is determined by your performance. It's what we hear over and over again. Your identity is determined by your performance. You perform well, your identity is good. You perform poorly, your identity is bad. And so in the moments you're good, whatever that means, right? Because good shifts and slides and moves. But whenever we're good, then I'm labeled good. But if 
my performance is bad, then I'm labeled bad. We tell our kids, don't be a bad boy, or we tell our daughters, you're such a good girl. Based on what? Based on how well they behave, right? You're behaving well, you're good. You're behaving poorly, you're bad. See, we use identity to incentivize behavior. Let me say that again so you can hear it. We use identity to incentivize behavior. I want you to behave a certain way, so I'm gonna identify you based on how you behave. In essence, I'm gonna tell you how you perform determines who you are. So what you do creates who you are. Because we're raised in an atmosphere, in a culture, in a world that perpetuates the lie that you are what you do. And it's so deeply ingrained in our psyche and in our culture that we don't even realize it. You are what you do. And so what we're going to see today is that this constant push to perform and this persistent mentality of finding our identity and performance actually leads to some very unexpected and negative consequences. And so my hope is that as we go through this, what we will do is actually begin to wake up will wake up and be able to say, no, I see what this is doing in the deeper places of my life, and I'm gonna live in truth, not the lie, that what I do determines who I am. And so here's the deal. Finding our identity and performance leads to this unexpected consequence, and that consequence has the same power over our progress in Christ as that stake and that chain has on that elephant. It keeps us stuck in a place right where the enemy wants us to be. It holds us right there. And as we go through this, you're going to see that we're not all that different from that elephant. And the consequence of a performance-based society is this, shame. Shame is that stake. Because we live in a performance-based world that reinforces the lie that I am what I do, we all face it to some degree or another, and we all experience it at some time or another. None of us have lived a shame-free life. None of us have lived a shameless life. That's the greatest tool of the enemy to keep us stuck. And so hopefully what we're gonna see today is how Jesus actually invites us to live shamelessly. That's what he would call freedom or an abundant life. Freedom, abundant life, is to live without the chain of shame holding us in space. And so we're gonna walk through these verses, these verses in Matthew 4 a little bit. And so it starts in verse five. Then the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple. Now here's my question to you. What was the epicenter of Jewish life in the first century? It's Jerusalem, right? Their prayers were about Jerusalem. At the end of the Passover every year, if they weren't in Jerusalem, they'd say, next year in Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the epicenter of Jewish life. And the epicenter of the epicenter was the temple. And that's exactly where Satan put Jesus. He had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple. Now here's the thing. There would have been no time no hour of the day 
in the first century where the temple wasn't being attended to. There would have been no time when there wasn't someone there. And so here's what I think. I think Satan took Jesus there in physical form, which means that there's a very good possibility that Jesus and possibly even Satan in some form or another could be seen on the top of the temple by people who were there. It's quite possible that that location of taking Jesus to tempt him with this was to draw a crowd. It's quite possible that what Satan tried to do is get Jesus in front of an audience. Now why would Satan want an audience when he's gonna tempt Jesus with this? Because he knew Jesus was human and he knows this deep truth about human nature. Shame runs much deeper when it's public. We've all experienced it. Something's happened in front of an audience and it runs much deeper. And so I think he was trying to set Jesus up. And you're going to see in just a moment that he put him in a no-win situation by bringing him to a public place. And so we get to verse 6. And he said to him, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written. So like last week, right again, with the if. He's trying to get Jesus to question his identity again. He's trying to get Jesus to say, well, I'm not really sure who I am. I mean, I know what I've been told, who I've been told I am, but now that you ask it that way, maybe, maybe I'm not. Maybe I'm not completely sure who I am. And so what he's doing, he's trying to invite Jesus into finding his identity and performing some deed. He thinks that he's putting Jesus in a no-win situation. Here's why. Because he knows our humanity is tainted by the lie of performance identity. He knows that in our humanity, we have decided that I am what I do. And so I need to do something. So he knows Jesus being fully human would be tempted by this to say, I am what I do. And he also knows that because there was probably an audience that if Jesus threw him down and failed, the shame would be overwhelming. It would lead to death. I wonder if he also knew that if Jesus threw himself down and succeeded, then the audience would worship him as a human instead of God the Father. You see how in his mind he could think he put Jesus in a no-win situation? Either in your humanity you will die if the Father doesn't save you, or in your humanity you will be worshipped because you pulled this great stunt off in front of an audience at the most holy place. And Jesus knew he was sent to glorify the Father, not to glorify himself. So in Satan's mind, he set the perfect trap. Whatever you do, your mission's over. Because you will become God to these people. They won't glorify the Father, they glorify you as a human being. And if you don't succeed, then you'll be gone as a human being. So either Jesus is gone for good or he supplants the Father in the hearts of God's people. And Satan tries to remind him that God wants this. He will give his angels orders concerning you and on their hands they will lift you up so that you do not strike your foot against a stone. And then Satan does that thing he does in those verses. He takes truth out of context. He makes it about us instead of God and then uses it to justify self-identity building. Takes it out of context, he makes it about us instead of God, and then he uses it in our minds to justify our own self identity building. He still does that with us. 
If you think about temptations that have come into your life, don't you see that pattern? I know this is true, but let me twist it out of context a little bit because then I can justify what it is I want. Well, God's all about me, right? God wants me to be happy. He wants me to get what I want. He wants me to be cared for. Well, I need to be a self-made person. So I've got to step into this. That's why Bible study should begin with knowing the heart of the Scriptures before you try to know the Scriptures by heart. When you study your Bible and you want to, your goal is to know the Scriptures by heart, you're actually putting yourself in a position for Satan to use those very Scriptures to tempt you. But if you know the heart of the Scriptures, he can never take them out of context before you. They'll never, ever, become about you instead of God. And you won't use it to justify building self-identity. So listen to Jesus' response. Jesus said to him, on the other hand, it's written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. I think there's something really interesting here because Satan's temptation was oriented around performance. He was basically saying, do something that proves that you are in fact the Son of God. And Jesus responds by saying that doing in order to obligate God to act in a certain way is actually testing God. So let's hold on to that word, test, for a moment. It's the Greek word, ekperazzo. And what it means is to unreasonably or inappropriately demand proof unreasonably or inappropriately demand proof. And so when you look at that word in the context and in the original language, it's clear that Jesus is saying nobody gets to make God prove anything. In essence, he's going, yeah, that ain't my job. That's not why I'm here. See, this statement from Jesus saying nobody gets to make God prove anything, a statement is what makes our earning mentality so insidious. Do you see it? Because here's why. We live in a world that's established on earning. It starts when you're a kid and it just continues into your adult life. The earning concept is actually part of our fallen DNA. It's deep within us, saying that we have to earn things. Earning becomes the system that we think the entire world operates on. I do good, I earn esteem. I do bad, I earn rejection. The problem is that we place the same mentality on our relationship with God that we place on our relationship with the world. I grew up in a world that tells me I've got to earn everything. And then God comes along and says, it's by grace that you've been saved. And we go, yes, it's by grace. Now let me earn the fact that I have grace. And grace is directly opposed to earning. Remember the parable of the workers that Jesus told? Some started at the beginning of the day, some started at the end of the day, and at the, when it's pay time, they all got the same amount of pay? See, an earning mentality does that to us. It causes us to compare ourselves to others 
And so we become those workers who started at the first part of the day, at least in our own minds. I've been here all day, I worked hard. How dare you bless these folks by paying them what you paid me? It's not how it works with God. And so something in us, if we're gonna truly live into grace, if we're gonna truly live into that freedom and abundant life that Jesus talks about, something in us has to shift at a deep fundamental level. It has to pull us out of this earning mentality and has to place us deep in an ocean of grace where those waves just wash over us constantly. Unfortunately, that mentality of earning runs so deep that we live out of the earning and shame. I try to earn God's acceptance the same way I earn the acceptance of my parents and my teachers and my coaches and my boss and my spouse. And I can't earn God's acceptance, so what do I feel? I feel shame over what I've done. And if I can't earn your acceptance, God, at least I can feel really bad about myself, right? Because I know you feel bad about what I've done. So if I can't earn your acceptance, I'm gonna align my heart and my mind to the rejection of myself. I'm gonna live in shame, that's what it's called. And so if I agree with you, then at least I'm getting closer to you. So if we can both look at me and say you're despicable, then at least we got that in common because I can't earn your acceptance. Here's the problem. God doesn't feel really bad about you when you do wrong. He doesn't look at you and go, you're despicable. He doesn't look at you and go, you need to be rejected. When we sin, he doesn't look at us and go, oh yeah, I can't, no. We're done here. Move on. Move on. Listen to this. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our wrongdoings from us. That's Psalm 103, 12. Did you guys know this? If I had a compass here right now and I pointed it east and I started walking, I would never be going west. Do you realize that? If I point it north and I begin walking, eventually I'll go south. Once I walk to the North Pole and I take that next step, I'm going south. There is no place on the globe where east becomes west. How did the psalmist know this? I'm guessing he didn't have a compass. But do you see what he's saying in this psalm? There's an infinite distance between east and west. If you begin to move east, you will never go west. That's how far God has removed your sins from you. Or listen to this, Isaiah 43, 25. I, I alone, am the one who wipes out your wrongdoings for my own sake and I will not remember your sins. Why does he wipe them out? For my own sake. When you will not live in the grace and forgiveness and acceptance of God that you have not earned, you are actually trying to deny God of his glory. He forgives us for his own sake. What he's saying is my forgiveness of you isn't about you, it's about me. It glorifies me when the world can look at me and go, look at my despicable beloved. You know him, you've seen what he's done, and yet I love him deeply and I've forgiven all of it. 
Listen to this, Psalm 51, 16. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offering. Look, another way to view the word sacrifice is earning or performance. You do not delight in earning. You do not delight in me performing for you. Otherwise I would earn your affection. I would perform for you. God does not, the des- does not desire the earning mentality to be a part of your relationship with him. So if it's not sacrifice, then what? What draws us closer to him in our times of shame and sin when that earning mentality pops up? Well, the next verse, verse 17 and 51. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, God, you will not despise. He wants us to come to him as we are, to bring to him the brokenness of shame and the feelings of rejection that we carry around. He's not going to despise that. I think oftentimes our earning culture tells us, I've got to move in a certain direction before I can actually go to God. I've got to resolve this thing or I've got to do something and then I can go to God with my sin. I've got to carry a certain amount of it and then he'll carry the rest. But here's the secret. Shame's undone when we know that there's a person who will not despise us even when they know our shameful deeds. Shame is undone when we know there's a person who will not despise us even though they know our shameful deeds. That person sometimes is a friend or a loved one, but it's always Jesus. Always Jesus. I love the fact that I can go to him and and he knows everything I've done. And there's still no rejection, no abandonment. It's so, so comforting to be able to sit, just as we sang, because he lives. Because he lives, he knows all the junk I've done. Because he lives, I can go to him at any moment. You see how that unravels shame? You see how that removes that earning culture? And so let's go back to our elephant friend. Can you guys put that picture back up of the, yeah. Do you know how they get that elephant not to pull the stake out of the ground? Do you know? It's actually pretty simple. We've all heard the saying, an elephant never forgets, right? Well, that's not completely true, but it's mostly true. Elephants have very good memories. They remember things for for a lifetime. Some things they forget, but they remember a lot of stuff for a lifetime. You see, that elephant gets chained to that stake and held in place when it's a baby. When it doesn't have the strength to pull it out. It tries and it tries and it tries and fails because it's not big enough to pull that stake out. And then unfortunately for it, it gives up before it grows big enough to remove that stake. And then because elephants never forget, the rest of its life, it remembers, oh, the stake though and the chain, I tried. I tried and tried and tried and I can't pull it out. Even though it's grown beyond its capacity that it had when it failed. So it doesn't break free. Can you relate to that elephant? I think we all can. See, here's what I think. I think our earning mentality is that stake. 
that mentality that we all grow up in where you gotta earn acceptance, love, inclusion. You gotta earn presence. I think that's the state. I think the chain is shame. And then we expect God to deal with us in the same manner that everyone else in our lives deals with us and in the same way that we deal with others. You want my affection? You gotta earn it. You wrong me, I will shame you. You gotta earn my forgiveness. You gotta earn my acceptance. You gotta earn my love. You gotta earn my presence. And not, not just once, not just one time, but constantly. Constantly. And then we mess up and we strain the relationship and we feel shame. So we do what Adam and Eve did in the garden. We run and hide. That's not the way it's supposed to be. And the only reason it is that way is because we're applying to God the dynamics of a world that we created. We created this dynamic of earning and shame. He didn't, we did. And we're taking what we created and we're saying, God, I'm gonna view you through the lens that we made. Because if this is how I function, and remember back to the garden, right? You will be like God. If this is how I function, then it must be how you function. Because I'm like you. And the reality is, it's not true. Listen to this. In Romans 7, Paul figured it out. He figured out the answer to shame and guilt. He figured out how to pull that stake up and break that chain. Starting in verse 21 in Romans 7, I find then in the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully agree with the law of God in the inner person, but I see a different law in the parts of my body waging war against the law of my mind. Anybody identify with that? Anybody have those moments where you go, I don't know why I'm doing this. I don't want to do this. It's the very thing I don't want to do, and, and yet here I am doing it. Waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, the law which is in my body's parts. Now here's the punchline. Wretched man that I am, you ever felt that? Sure, we all have. I'm a wretched person. I'm sure we felt it. And it puts us in one of two directions. We either look at ourselves when we feel that wretchedness and we walk right into shame, we pick up the chain, we tie it around our leg, and our soul is stuck in this very spot Satan wants to drive the stake in the ground. Or we do what Paul did. We ask the question that he asks next. Who will set me free from this body of death? We stand there before God and we go, God, I'm wretched. I don't know what to do. I got nothing. And then here's the answer. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other with my flesh, the law of sin. Do you see what he's saying there? I'm stuck in this middle place. My job is not to figure out how to earn God's affection. My job is not to work my way out of shame. My job is simply to recognize my wretchedness and turn to God and pray, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Can I invite you into that this week? 
As you sit before God, like we've been talking about, find that 15-minute windows in your day to sit before God and say, tell me who I am. And as you sit there and God tells you, this is who you are, you're my beloved in Christ, and you start thinking of those reasons, those shameful moments that come up and you go, yeah, I know you say I'm your beloved, but what about this? Here's my wretchedness. What about this? This, I'm wretched because of this. In those moments where you, that wretchedness comes up, will you just do one thing and turn to him and say, I don't know who's gonna save me from this body of death, but praise be to you through Jesus Christ, my Lord. Because I think what you're gonna find is that the invitation of Christ is not simply to go, hey, believe in me and one day you will live in heaven. The invitation of Christ is, hey, believe in me and one day you will live heaven here. And you know what part of heaven is? There's no shame, there's no guilt. So what we have to do is take those things that are not heavenly and lay them in the lap of Christ who says, give me this, bring to me your burdens, and I'll carry them and you live free. The word confession in the Greek, homologeo, Literally, it's a compound word. It means same word. This is our problem. We don't confess. What we do is we rattle off the laundry list of our wrongs. But the truth of confession is that I take the same word Christ has for me. So what's the word that he speaks over my sin when I go before God in my own quiet time and go, Lord, here's the sin in my life. Here's what I'm laying before you. What does he say about that? Well, he comes back and he says, as far as the east is from the west, that's how far it's been removed from you. You're a new creation in me. I've forgiven your sin for my own sake. And so confession isn't just spurting out all of the junk. The second part of confession is taking the same word that God says about that. We do the first part really well. We actually think we're, we're, we've got this spiritual depth I confess my sins daily. Yeah, but do you believe what God says about them? Because you look kind of miserable after you do that. You're not walking around with joy and freedom. You're staying in the wretched, not the praise be to God. And so as you go through this week, and hopefully you are still finding some time in your day to sit down and go, here I am, Lord, tell me who I am. Just tell me who I am. And as you do that, Get to that place where that, the things that are shameful, the things that you don't like about yourself come up. Get to that place and actually go there. Don't just try to step over it like it's, you know what, out in the middle of the field. Actually go there and say, God, this is the place of my shame and I invite you into it and you come with me there. Here is me sitting before you saying I am wretched. What I need is for you to answer the question, who can save me from this body of death deep in my heart, in my mind, in my soul in this moment? Answer that question and I will praise you through Jesus Christ, my Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we just have the opportunity to come to you in such great and and counter-cultural and counter-intuitive ways. There's nobody else on this planet that we think We believe, we trust that we can go to in our worst moments. 
And so, Father, forgive us for for casting that perception onto you. Save us from that. Release us from that. Reorient our beings, our souls, our hearts, and our minds towards the reality that there's nothing we can do to earn your favor, that you forgive us for your own name's sake, that you've removed the sin from us. We don't have to perform for you. We have to perform everywhere else in this world, and we know it. We don't like it, but we know it. But we don't have to perform for you. And Father, I ask that you break the chain of shame that all of us have to some degree or another, and that you pull up that stake of identity rooted in performance and let us walk fully and freely into the life that your son came to live so that we could live as well. We ask all that in his name. Amen.